Hi, this is Bennett Kelly. Thanks for listening to Cyberlaw Business Report. Before you take a recess to hear the latest internet law news and commentary, you are hereby ordered to download the Webmaster Radio.fm mobile app for iPhone and Android. Okay, maybe not ordered, but why not? You can listen live to my show and all our show hosts every day on our live stream or download past episodes with ease. So download the webmasterradio.fm mobile app in the iTunes store or in the Google Play store. It's an open and shut case. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly with the Internet Law Center broadcasting live from Santa Monica, California, here in the heart of Silicon Beach, and um, I, I was tempted to say live from Nationals Park. Um, actually, as we speak right now, the uh, um, baseball playoffs are starting in Washington, and it's be the first time they've had um, October baseball in Washington since 1933, and coincidentally, it's the anniversary of when they won um, the World Series, the only time in 1924. So hopefully that's a good omen for the, uh, the hometown team. But it's also another significant day in Washington. Um, it was this day in 1963 that, um, President Kennedy, um, along with the, the, the English and the Russians signed the, um, nuclear test ban treaty, which was, um, started as a policy initiative in his um, commencement address at American University in 1963, earlier that year. And um, I mention that because our first guest is um, Patricia Offerheit from uh, the American University um, School of Communication. She's with the Center for Social Media. And she's going to be talking to us about um, the state of free use on the web. And then the second half hour... Um, we have um, Tess Cacciatore, and she's going to be talking about the, the Gwen Network, and um, it is, it's part of uh, our observance of um, – this is um, National um, Domestic Violence Awareness Month in um, October. So uh, we'll be talking with Tess in the second half hour. But um, I believe we have Professor Orphidite. Are you with us? Thank you so much. Yes, it's a delight to be here. Great. Thank you for coming. And um, – um, all the way from Washington, D.C. and the American University, my alma mater. And uh, so you've um, – well, first of all, let's talk a little bit about the uh, Center for Social Media. What is the, the nature of that and what's its mission? So the Center for Social Media, which is centerforsocialmedia.org, um, exists to be able to promote making media that matters, uh, social issue media, and that can connect with people using the many tools that we have, including including the many social media networking tools. And one of the ways in which we help people make media more successfully is to enable them to use their fair use rights more effectively. As you know, fair use is the right to use copyrighted material without permission or payment under some circumstances. And what people always want to know is what exactly are those circumstances? Yes, and I have to tell you that until recently, nobody really cared about fair use because 
until, well, on, not recently in my life because I'm older. 1976 was when we all started to have to really care about fair use. Because until then, a lot of stuff in our world really wasn't copyrighted. Copyright wasn't default. You had to actually go to some effort to copyright something. And it wasn't terribly long. Now it's, now it's longer. It's, it's, you know, 70 or more years after the, after the death of the person who created the work. And of course, uh, you know, if you have children, your children are bringing home work from kindergarten or grade school every day that is copyrighted to them by default and will be until 70 years after their death. So it's, you know, this, is really, um, this is really now a world where no matter where you go, no matter what you see, that stuff is copyrighted. There's nowhere on the Internet that, is, uh, that this stuff isn't copyrighted because everything is default copyrighted. And it doesn't really matter. The Internet doesn't change anything. It's... it's uh, you know, it's it's all copyrighted stuff. There are some exceptions. There is a little bit of stuff in the public domain, but not really very much and not reliably. So every single time you use other people's stuff, in some way you have to ask, well, um, do I have to license this or am I going to use my fair use rights? And just to go back on the whole unfair use, it. The copyright, there's actually a provision in the Constitution that authorizes Congress to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing the, for limited times, mind you, um, to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. And, but also at the same time, the, um, the Constitution also provides, you know, through the Bill of Rights, um, you know, the, the First Amendment. And so this, the fair use kind of comes from that tension of allowing copyrights but still allowing, you know, uh, open discussion. Um, sure, and let me just let me just point out, Bennett, that that copyright includes the right to be able to use copyrighted material without permission or payment. That's built, that's baked into the mission because the mission isn't to protect people who made stuff. The mission is to promote the progress of science and the useful arts. The, progress, the, the mission is to create more culture. So one way you can create more culture, in, you can have government encourage the creation of more culture, is by giving a perk to people who made it. But another way that government cre- uh, encourages the creation of culture is by liberating some of that stuff so that people, other people can come along and make more stuff with it. So both of those things are built into copyright, and you are so right that the First Amendment is the is the anchoring concept for fair use. Because um, if it weren't for fair use, given the incredibly extended, limited terms of copyright now, limited in the sense of oh, it's only seventy years after the death of the author. That's limited. The the, the public the the um, the Supreme Court twice now has said out loud, uh, the, we think that these ex- incredibly extended terms of copyright are acceptable under the First Amendment, and they don't turn people into private censors with government permission because people have their fair use rights, so they should just go ahead and use them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, you know, that's all very well and good for the, the, the Supreme Court to say, and many other lawyers say it as well. But if you are going to use your fair use rights, you really do have some questions about, well, exactly, where, where is my comfort zone? Where am I going to be okay? Now, that's and, uh, where that's the centers awesome. come in. And, and, you know, lawyers and, and particularly business people uh, avoid uncertainty. 
And I was at a presentation. There was an, um, a University of Pennsylvania pr- professor who's written a book on Hollywood's copyright laws, and he did a presentation at the Academy of Motion Pictures. Oh, Peter DeCherny. What a yes. great guy. Yeah. And he did his great pres- presentation, but it was interesting in that there were a lot of um, – there were a lot of documentarians in the audience, and they said that it would, when they tried to get um, clearance from their insurance company to include something that they thought was protected by fair use, um, a lot of insurance companies wouldn't, wouldn't allow them. You know, that used to be true. That absolutely used to be true. It isn't true anymore, but it certainly was true if you tried to get insurance before 2005. And what completely changed the environment was that filmmakers, through their professional associations, and I'm proud to say with facilitation from the Center for Social Media, got together to create a code of best practices. In other words, what do we think is appropriate uh, interpretation of this rather vague part of the law, what is appropriate interpretation if I need to make a documentary film? In other words, if I'm adding to culture, if I'm contributing to the progress of science and the useful arts, science in the, terms, in the sense of knowledge, mm-hmm. what do I need from this law? And they did get legal oversight, but it's a non-legal document that has become incredibly influential, and influential in this sense, Bennett. I'm just really shocked, actually, uh, when it when it came out in 2005, it was impossible for errors and omissions insurers, which is the insurance all documentary filmmakers need to get. It was impossible right. to get errors and omissions insurance for a fair use claim. Now, every single insurer for this kind of insurance in the United States accepts uh, in, accepts fair use claims if they're done within the terms of the documentary filmmaker's statement of best practices and fair use. And all you need is a lawyer's letter saying, "This uh, I have read the statement of best practices and I, uh, uh, I will aver that these uses are within the terms of the statement. And here's the most exciting part. The errors and omissions insurers value the risk of doing that so low that they do not charge any more for it than they do for the rest of your clearances. So this is a very powerful statement about how usable fair use is if you have a community standing behind you saying, this is what we regard as is the core of acceptable in this area. And for people who are doing internet marketing, for people who are living on the web, for people who are doing online video, I think it's important to point out that we also have developed with communities a code of best practices for online video. We have worked with librarians to develop a code of best practices if you have an archive or if you're making material available for students. We've worked with people who teach in high schools and middle schools to uh, create a code of best practices in media literacy. And all of those, I think, are of great utility to people who have to make these choices. And if you have no immediate community, I think something else that really helps is is our recent book, which is called Reclaiming Fair Use, which is like $12 on Amazon. But it lays out the basic thing, the two things you have to think about when you make a fair use decision these days. If you, you know, the, the, this is how judges think. They're, they ask two basic questions. Did you just use it for the same reason as the original was made? Did a photographer take a picture of a sunset and now you just need a generic picture of a sunset to decorate your website so you'll just take that? 
Well, the photographer created that in order for people like you to buy his beautiful sunset picture. So no, you're just using it for the same purpose. Or are you taking a, a taking something from another source and you repurposing it in some way to make new culture. So you're going to take a paragraph from somebody else's blog post or from from the uh, from the newspaper and you're going to comment on it. Well, you're not providing it for the same purpose as the original. You are adding. And then the second question that judges ask is, how much did you take? Did you take uh, enough to ma- to match up with your new purpose? Anyway, so it, this is the 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 great the sea change in fair use has been since 2005 as communities of practice have decided to articulate their fair use needs and in relate them to mission and create these codes. And in community after community, we've seen a sort of the breath of fresh air come in. Now, on that analysis, I mean, one of the one of the leading cases that have happened. Um, involved this uh, adult website called Perfect Ten, and initially, um, Perfect Ten was suing Google over the inclusion of the thumbnails of, of their images in Google's image directory. And the court said that Google's you know, was more or less transformative and, and creating a new um, product, so to speak, and that there really was no recognizable value anyway of the pictures in that size to begin with. And so there was really no exactly. harm to Perfect Ten. But Perfect Ten has since then tried to argue that's not the case. Well, they can argue all they want, but, but the, the, the thumbnail case, as it's often known, is, uh, is a really uh, beautiful example of, um, uh, of the, the nature of transformativeness. Because Google's, uh, Google's use of these thumbnails had nothing to do with the purpose of Perfect Ten's work. And nobody is going to use Google's, Google's thumbnails and say, oh, you know, I've now met my erotic needs that, that I would have uh, been able to do by diving into Perfect Ten. So um, it, was, it was a very clear case of, you know, Google is adding to culture by doing something completely different with that material, and it's using only as much as it needs to. It doesn't need, like, to have a gigantic picture of one of those perfect 10 images. It needs to only have enough for people to say, oh, yeah, that's this. Now, the, the, statutorily, the, the, they list four criteria. You the purpose and character of the use and whether such use is commercial in nature or for nonprofit educational purposes. Um, the second would be the nature of the copyrighted work, and third is the the amount and substantiality of the portion used in relation to the copyrighted work as a whole, and the last is the effect of the use upon the potential market for the sale of the copyrighted work, which we just discussed with respect to the thumbnails. Yeah, and doesn't that really help you make a decision on the fly if you're an internet marketer? And you know? I think. Well, yeah, I mean, that's Go the ahead. thing. It, it's, you know, it's one of those, you know it when you see it, and which allows for either people to make um, judgments that may or may not be correct or, um, or just avoid it altogether. And I think so you're let concerned. Me, let me make mm-hmm. – go ahead. Go ahead. So here's the thing about the four factors. The four factors are of no help at all to somebody who needs, as, <laughs> as a non-lawyer, to make a decision on fair use because they were originally 
made as suggestions for four things to think about. But what you want to know is if if this thing actually came to court, which God forbid, right? How would how would a judge rule? How would a judge make those decisions? So, and indeed, over time since 1841, when fair use was first established in a court case, those are the four factors that were mentioned in an 1841 court case. Um. People in people sitting in the judges' chambers have made different evaluations. There was a time when that fourth factor, the effect on the market, was a huge factor. But since 1990, it has decisively moved in another direction. The two questions I mentioned actually encompass the four factors, because the first factor is what's the nature of the well. You have you you have what's the nature of the original work, and then what's the nature of the new work. If you add those together, what that is is how is the new work using that material differently from the old work? So it's not just stealing it. It's not just playing the Beyonce song because we love to listen to Beyonce. Uh-huh. It is in some way doing something different with the Beyonce song, perhaps commenting on it or contrasting it with an earlier Beyonce song to say Beyonce has evolved or, or declined in her musical ability in some way. Uh, you've, you've become a critic on it. You only need as much as you need. But So the, the first two factors combine to say, in what way have you transformed this material? This doesn't mean you decorated it or you changed it or you only took a corner of it. It means what, how have you put it into a new context? And in other words, how have you not just taken what was on the market and used it without paying the guy? How have you taken whatever you need from it in order to generate new culture? And the second question that the judges ask is actually the third factor. How much did you use? And what they're saying is how much did you use in terms of your need for the transformativeness? There was a recent court case in which somebody used 100%. In fact, Perfect 10 is a case of using 100% of an image. Uh, but it's using 100% of an image for a new purpose in a thumbnail. So they, it, it, it's... The amount used is exactly appropriate. If you do that, then the effect on the market, which is the fourth factor, is completely taken care of. Because what you've said is, look, I used your stuff, but I didn't just take your stuff for its original purpose. That would have been, I would have been substituting for your thing on the market and nobody would be paying for it. That would be a loss in the market to you. But what I did was something new and something that you weren't doing and something that wasn't on the market. And the law says, I don't pay for that. So the, the, the four factors are a source of endless anxiety to people. And the big news, and this is described in the book, but it's, it's, also, um, it's also the basis for the way in which people think in the codes of best practices. There's 10 codes of best practices, by the way. But um, the, 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 the logic that... that I think is much easier to understand is, am I having a transformative purpose? Am I repurposing it in some other context? And am I using as much as I need, not too much and not too little? Now, um, and when, I'm sorry, the last thing that is that the ju- judges do not ask you, and the reason I talk about judges is not because there are many lawsuits. There are very, very few lawsuits on fair use. But because ultimately that's where you want, that's where you want to go to know if it came to that, how would it be decided? And once people know that, then they can work back to what, will, what would other people, what would I say if somebody threatened to sue me? I would say that's not how we decide things. 
But the 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 other thing that's really important to make it realize is that judges do not require that you made exactly and completely the right call. Only this many pixels, only this many seconds, only this many words. They ask you to make a reasonable judgment. So they're they're going to look they're going to look and say, are you in, they ask if you're in good faith. That's actually not part of the law, but it's something they ask. Are you in good faith? Did you, you know, do you have an argument? Do you have a story here about why it's transformative? And it, was your use reasonable? Not was it exactly and completely what the judge would say was to the second, what your choices of how much. Um, now, you, you've in your, especially in, in your book, you, you've expressed concern that the copyright laws are actually reducing content, that because of concern over whether or not something's fair use or not, people are, are self, uh, self-editing or self-censoring, and because of this uncertainty, there is less content than there would be otherwise. We, we have documented that again and again in, in small populations. That's absolutely true. Now, we know at the same time that there's an absolute burgeoning of content, um, but what we see again and again when people make decisions is that they uh, they act from fear and often irrational fear. I mean, fear that isn't backed up by by the actual risk involved. So what we would like people to realize is that fair use is available. It is not a frightening decision to make. It's like all your other free speech rights. It's all your all your other First Amendment rights do involve subjective decisions about context that you make pretty comfortably every day. Um, and we would like to see fair use aligned with the mandate of the Constitution that people contribute to culture. Because when people contribute to culture, but they do so in a way that is is fearful or acts from uh, an unwarranted expectation of risk, the, the culture itself becomes deformed. It doesn't. It isn't as creative as it might be, and people are really stuck using those fair use rights, using their First Amendment rights under under copyright, because copyright is so extend. The rights of monopoly holders are so extended these days, and and we don't actually think that's probably going to change in our lifetimes. So if if that's not going to change, then if people want to create in a reasonable way, they need to use their rights. Um, we're going to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll continue this conversation and talk a little bit about um, some some topic we've talked about before on this show, and that's Right Haven um, with the infamous copyright troll. So um, copyright trolls and more after these messages. You're listening to the Cyberlaw Business Report. I'm- Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Oh, yeah. My day is done. Time for happy hour. You're already done for the day? Yeah, because I use certifiedknowledge.org. Their PPC tools literally save me hours every day. How do you keep on top of all of Google's new features? Easy. With Certified Knowledge, their interactive learning modules keep me up to date. And if there's something I don't know, I can watch their video lessons without having to hunt around the Google help files. Great. I'm ready to expand my knowledge. Hi, I'm Brett Geddes. I'm the only leader officially supported by Google to teach the advanced track of the AdWords Seminars for Success. I personally recommend CertifiedKnowledge.org as your one-stop shop for all your PPC needs. Learn. Optimize. Connect. Be smart. Go to CertifiedKnowledge.org now. Building better search engine rankings takes the right formula. Tracking those rankings is super simple. All you need is AuthorityLabs.com. 
Authority Labs uses automated daily rank tracking tools to monitor your site's performance or leverage their API to build your own tools. No matter what animal-labeled algorithms affect your ranking, you should be using Authority Labs. Unlimited users for no additional cost and white labeling can help keep your clients updated and save countless hours of creating reports. Whether you're running sites with just a few or millions of keywords, what you need is authoritylabs.com. Looking for a white label SEO and social platform for your clients? Think eBrands. Free and unlimited SEO audit reports. eBrands. Premium Facebook apps and welcome page creators. eBrands. Twitter management app, analytics, and mobile site generators. eBrands. Let eBrands manage your search and social media campaigns and give you and your clients access to their white label dashboard, which have great reports that will wow your clients and deliver great ROI and results. Try eBrands for 30 days. Go to eBrandsWithAZ.com or call 1-866-625-5717. That's eBrandsWithAZ for eBrands. WebmasterRadio.fm. Keep your headphones handy and the feed loaded. We never stop. Do you? The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back. You're listening to Bennett Kelly here in um, the Internet Law Center for the Cyber Law and Business Report. And um, bad news so far, St. Louis has jumped to a one nothing lead after one inning in Washington. But um, anyway... Um, Getting back to fair use, we, it came up a lot last year and with the, the battle with the, the infamous copyright troll Right Haven. And when we were talking offline, you seemed to have a distinct uh, impression or opinion of Right Haven. So Right Haven, uh, in, in my opinion, was uh, a failed attempt to create a business model out of extortion. Out of, I shouldn't say extortion on a cyber law. Out of scaring yeah, that, that, that already exists as a business model. <laughs> yes, out of out of scaring people, and because because um, the 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 whole business model was let's go to people who are quoting our stuff, let's ignore that there is fair use, let's threaten them, well, let's just preemptively sue them, and um, they'll settle um, because they'll be so scared, and indeed many small fry bloggers did that. Larger folks, folks who had some legal expertise or even access to pro bono services, um, which I have to say, don't forget about legal clinics across the country. There's actually a list of them in our book uh, that can help you make decisions. But uh, their their thing was like, let's let's go and find out who's using our copyrighted content for whatever purpose, um, preemptively sue them, and then take the settlement money and run. And what happened to them in, in, in uh, court case after court cases, if it was at all contested, judges said, this is a complete waste of the court's time. And, you know, you're just, you're just a bad actor in this story. And, and Righthaven folded. Righthaven went into bankruptcy, and justly so, after scaring a lot of people and scaring them most well, I don't know all the all of the cases that fair uh, that Right Haven went after. The ones I looked at were very clearly fair use. But it seemed you make it a, an important point that, about fear, because it actually I don't think the business model was about the money. I think the business model was about the fear, because you know the, well, the oh, interesting. 
Yeah, the publisher said, you know, he they believed that any use of their content was equivalent to like auto theft. And so they were really trying to discipline the market out of fear. It's interesting. I don't know what the motivations of the of the publisher were, but but it was uh it was one of those really really disastrously bad legal maneuvers to try to use the courts to uh to change habits of people. Um and it's and it's like uh it's it, Another example of people doing that poorly was when the RIA started suing people for downloading, which, by the way, is not fair use. Uh, illegal uh, peer-to-peer file sharing of copyrighted material for the pleasure of using that material for its original purpose is very clearly not fair use. That is that is infringement. Uh, and RIA found cases of infringement and um, sued all these all these people, like you know, single mothers. You know it. And then they ended up having to keep on suing people, and it was this huge money suck, uh, and and they couldn't stop doing it, and and it got them absolutely nowhere. Meanwhile, of course, the 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 market was taking care of the problem by creating legal ways for people to download fairly cheaply, and and that's you know uh, that's iTunes and and similar programs and and um, cloud stuff like Spotify. So, so using using the court system fecklessly is just not looked upon kindly by the courts themselves. And, and Wright Haven paid paid a price, and, and so did the Las Vegas newspaper. And the um, there's something analogous to that happening um, right now in terms of litigation, but brought by a certain um, company that has gay porn. And they're actually using the threat of exposure by litigation to actually get more in settlement than they would if they litigated. I mean, the general rule of settling a case is you know you, you compromise, you get less than you would. Whereas here, I mean, this is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. go ahead. Go ahead. Well, the 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 problem with settlement, the 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 problem one one real problem with fair use is there actually is so little litigation. And often people do settle, and then you don't know what the courts would have said about fair use. And this is exactly right. what happened in the sampling cases, the, everything but the last uh, legal judgment on sampling. Uh, they never even went to a fair use defense um, in, in, in cases of charges of infringement about sampling. So nobody really knows what the judges would have said about so- uh about that, and, and but yet people become afraid anyway. So, what do you see as the the biggest mis, um, um, false perception or misconception that people have about fair use on and so as it applies online? I think it's, I think it's, it's tied up. One one is uh, it's too gray. I don't know how to make a decision. And actually, there's a very clear way to make a decision. It's not too hard. Am I repurposing this, or am I using it for the original purpose? And am I using the appropriate amount of it to and in the appropriate way that is matched up to my purpose? That's not too hard to do. And the second thing is related to that, which is, oh my God, the risk would be terrible if you're in good faith. You made a you made a reasonable judgment on those two those two things, those two questions. And ideally, you're in a community of practice that has established a code of best practices. Well, then, then, then it becomes very easy, and the risk is so low that, for instance, in the case of the documentarians, their own insurance companies say this risk is so low, low we are not going to charge you for it. So, so um, 
you, you know, I think those are the those are the two. Those are two of the many myths. Another big myth is, oh, I can use thirty seconds. I can use four hundred words, and all those things. Right. That's just some kind of like, I don't know what the, uh, the internet equivalent of old wives' tale is, but that it seems to have the same type of currency. Uh, yes, exactly. No, exactly. well, it, it, I can tell you, but at a later time, when when we're not on such a short deadline, why I think those those um, myths have arisen. But the but fair use is not constrained to any of those uh, rigid rules. Fair use is is the law was written to try to encourage people to uh, use the law to make new stuff and not to be penalized by the fact that people have these very extended copyrights if they are contributing to the culture. Now, we only have a few minutes so left. Um, um, if people want to find out more about your book, where, where should they go? Amazon has it, Reclaiming Fair Use. You can also go to our website, centerforsocialmedia.org. Uh, centerforsocialmedia.org slash fair use is the, is the zone of our website that has, a lot, it has all the codes of best practices. It has FAQs. Um, it has a fair use question of the month. Um, it has videos. It has PowerPoint explanations, uh, and if you don't find any of those to be to your satisfaction, there's a place for, to write us so that we can help make new, mater- new materials that would uh, address your, your learning needs. Now, that's how I came across you. I saw that your, your fair use question a month, and I thought that was just brilliant. So I wanted to <laughs> commend you for that. And, uh, and, so if, and for listeners, um, uh, if you go to the Internet Law Center blog, ilccyberreport.wordpress.com, there, is, um, there are links to um, the um, Center for um, Social Media as well as background information on American University and um, the professor and um, some additional background information on from fair use. And we didn't get to talk about it, but I actually had a link to one of the Hitler videos um, that maybe oh, we can talk about yeah, some other time. The Hitler meme, yeah. Yes, that's but a really good example of fair use. It, there, there was a fair use Hitler meme that got taken down um, by YouTube, and, and then uh, got put back, put back up. It did get put because up. people it fought, got put fought. back up because people understood their fair use rights and asserted them. So yes, but it, it was kind of interesting that that's what the case. But we have to we have to go. Um, we have our next segment coming up. I want to thank you very much for joining us. It's been a pleasure, and um, hopefully I'll, maybe I'll meet you next time. I'm an American, but um, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate it. Um, we have Tess Cacciatore with the um, Gwen Network, and Tess, you there? Yes, I am. How are you? Fine, thank Fine. you. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, Tess is one of those people who, it, it's funny, um, today is Ben Vereen's birthday, and I don't know if you ever saw the movie All That Jazz, but he does, anytime he introduces someone, there's this long wind-up about, you know, he's this, he's that, he's, you know, he's someone that only this, this thing and that thing, and, and you remind me of that, actually. You know, you're a music producer, a social entrepreneur, a tech executive. Um, you've been nominated in a number of aspects of your career, um, so it's, it, you're, you're quite uh, a multifaceted person. Oh, I thank you, and I love Ben Vereen. So you know, if I could be anywhere near his company, I'm very privileged and honored. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> He'll be coming on later to serenade, but um, <laughs> good. Any any event. So um, first, for starters, the this is um, this is um, National um, Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and um, 
and so it's, you know, sort of programs um, you know, run by the Justice Department and a whole bunch of other organizations to promote awareness about domestic violence. And what, what does Gwen do to promote awareness on domestic violence? Well, first off, Gwen stands for Global Women's Empowerment Network. And what we want to do is be able to transform lives beyond abuse. So it's really about allowing the, the people, not only the women, you know, because we are a Global Women's Empowerment Network, but we can't do this without the conversation and healing with men. And, and the statistics are very high for men to be in abusive situations as well, which causes the cycles of abuse. But what we're going to do is really encourage the the people to come forward and tell their story through our technology platforms and to be able to combine with other people in their communities on a grassroots level to help strengthen the ability to bring awareness to their own communities about the statistics of sex trafficking, domestic violence, school bullying, which also this month is for school bullying. And then, you know, on a small, small scale, because we are a nonprofit organization and we don't really position ourselves politically or religiously, we do want to support propositions and different things. We have a phone app that I'll tell you about in a second that we want to take to Congress to be able to bring awareness for domestic violence and of course the Prop 35 that uh, your friend Chris Kelly is is gearing up towards for the November ballot is very important which is about human trafficking and online sexual predators. So just a small part on the legal side which you know ties in with your radio show but mostly about using technology and, and convergence media to be able to bring the, the communities together and, and bring people together for empowerment. But, and, you know, who better? You seem you're very well situated for that convergence since you are, you, you've been in tech, you've been in marketing, you've been in the nonprofit sector, and, and you're a songwriter even. Um, so it, it seems like this, you know, this is the perfect moment for you, and you know, who better to lead Gwen than, than you at this point? Oh, I appreciate that. It's like one of those stories that you hear when, you know, someone emerges out of the out of the woodwork and they say it's an overnight success. It's been 20 years or more in the making between, as you said, entertainment, technology, and nonprofit arenas. I, I'm probably, probably the crazy mix of all three, and I wouldn't be able to put Gwen on the map as you're helping us do without having all three of those components in place because the technology part of it is what – really, I think, will drive the, the glue and the connectivity between not only people in the United States, but we are global. And I've already been traveling for over a decade, meeting with powerful women and men and talking with children around the world that eventually my dream is to have the technology being readily available in all corners of the planet so we can actually be able to converge on a global scale as well. Well, let's talk a little bit about technology. One of the, the major breakthroughs in technology has been mobile platforms because in, in some de- in developing areas, they've, they've skipped um, landlines. They never really were fully implemented, and they went straight to the, you know, the 3G, 4G mobile technology. And in doing that, they get the benefit of the, the apps and all the other technology that goes with it. And, and so you... Um, you guys have an app, actually. Why tell us about the, um, the Gwen app? Well, I'm really very proud about this mobile app because it does a multitude of things. You know, it has the music component with amazing artists from around the world. We have two of those artists on our, our mobile app right now that are nominated for the Hollywood Music and Media Awards. One's from South Africa, Ard Matthews, and the other one is Gary Floyd from here in the United States with one of our theme songs for Gwen. 
and um, and then a Congolese artist that lives in Brussels that has an amazing hip hop song by the name of Pichu for the Heritage Project. So we have music, we have daily inspirational quotes that keeps our community engaged and inspired and empowered. And then we have a couple of other buttons for information purposes. And then um, the most important one for us is the Gwen Alert. And the Gwen Alert allows you to put your Gwen 5 into your phone. And you're able to, on an instant button, you'll be able to alert your Gwen 5 if you're ever in an emergency. So what's really great about this is it could be a high school student, a woman who's online dating, a man who's traveling, an uh, elderly person or a senior citizen that's alone. It could be for anybody that's in a domestic violence situation and they haven't had the ability to move out of their house. They'll be able to alert their local five people, or they don't have to be local, just as long as they have a text messaging system. Through the iPhone, they'll be able to communicate with their Gwen 5 and get help immediately. And the um, it's, is it also available in the Android platforms? It's not available yet on the Android platform, but it's we're working on that. And as well, what I want to do is be able to have it in a in a SMS text format as well, because I think it's going to be really important for people in developing countries. We work a lot in Africa and Asia. Um, one, one of the things with the Gwen Alert that I want to bring awareness to is the sex trafficking and, and what's going on in the United States. So we want to be able to allow for SMS down the road for it to have the Gwen Alert there. We want Gwen Alert to be a household name that we're bringing awareness and empowerment to people all over the world. Well, we'll be doing that, but first we're going to take a short break. Um, when we come back, we'll be talking to Tess more about the Gwen Alert, and um, I imagine there's been quite a few alerts being sent from National Park, where the Nationals are now down 4 to nothing um, in the second inning. So we'll be back after these messages. You're listening to Cyber Law and Business Report. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. How much time do you spend on SEO research and competitor analysis? What if we told you that there was an easier, faster way? Searchmetrics SEO software propels you to top positions on search engines around the world with our unique global search, social, and competitive data in over 60 countries. Gain a competitive advantage today with Searchmetrics.com. That's Searchmetrics.com. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS. Text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm. Sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. Rise links and web indexes. Take a bow to the largest link map in the world. Majestic SEO. Majestic SEO wields its virtual sort with speed and accuracy to deliver detailed reports of your company's link data and that of your competition. Let Majestic SEO make you your own king of internet marketers and join the crusade of clients and agencies that have chosen the noble choice for link intelligence. MajesticSEO.com 
Maximize ROI to use your time and let Majestic wield its mighty sword. MajesticSEO.com. It's good to be king. WebmasterRadio.fm. Get addicted. Get ahead. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. We're back. You're the Cyber Law and Business Report, broadcasting live from Santa Monica, California. And we have with us Tess Cacciatore. She is the founder and COO of the Gwen Network. And um, so... You're working on the Gwen Alert, and so tell us about how that platform works and, and what you've had to do to develop that. Well, first off, we um, I had the idea based on the experience that I had myself and just seeing the need that it would be great to have an instant message that would alert people that are close in your community. We want to obviously get the 911 system on board, and as I spoke earlier in your previous segment, I'd like to be able to take this to Congress and be able to get it into the public somehow. But um, my first step of getting it done was actually meeting up with Brad Zatot, and he is a mobile app developer. His name is, his company is called Company 28, and he had happened to have a really good successful run of this alert about dogs and missing dogs and so he had a gps location and that's one thing i forgot to mention on the on the most important part of the gwen alert is when you send your gwen 5 that you're in an emergency situation a gps pops up so your location is given so anybody can find you or you can call 91 and say hey i have a friend who's in distress and this is the location that they're at so getting, you know, getting Brad on board and getting him behind this, you know, he knew the expertise and the ins and outs of mobile apps and had great ideas. And we co-created it. And, and one of the special things that I can say about it is that even before it came out, the Mobile Excellence Awards gave us an award that we'll be receiving next week at Digital Hollywood here in Los Angeles, where we have this Social Awareness Award, which we're all very proud of. So we hope no, that it brings you- a, lot of, a lot of success. Now, your background, how how did you come to become part of Gwen? Well, as you said earlier, I've had about 20 years' experience. I started off in the entertainment industry, which segued into the technology arena. I was in the technology arena starting around 93. And I was brought into the nonprofit arena as a producer. And they wanted to produce a compilation of music to bring awareness and do a collaborative effort in the nonprofit arena. But back in the 90s, no one wanted to really play together. It was all very individualized. Thank God that has changed over the years. <laughs> <laughs> but back then, it was really difficult to call the nonprofit and say, hey, we want to give you money from the sales of this compilation. Not only is this a compilation, but I had the crazy idea of taking this new technology on the market at the time and making it an interactive box set. So, you know, we had to explain back then what an email was and then explain that if you put the CD in your in your player, videos will pop up. And, and lyrics- we were talking about this yesterday, I mean, just, for, just for the audience. You, she's, she says the 90s, but we're, we're talking early 90s, right? Yes, it was 93 when I started that project and, and uh, I became, a, you know, the founder of World Trust Foundation, which has been since 94, I was 501c3 and it still has... abbreviation that- for that? <laughs> <laughs> WTF. There you go. Um, 
But I'm sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. It, it was before all the, you know, instant messaging, of course. You know, I didn't think that that would be, you know, we, we were ahead of our time, but we didn't think to be that far ahead of our time. <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, going back to the interactive box set, that's what launched World Trust Foundation. And then I got dragged into the technology world, kicking and screaming, thinking, what in the heck is this world? And then my eyes got opened around 94. And from that moment on, I would live and breathe through these technology conferences and hearing all these panels of people talking and meeting with these beautiful minds of the world in, in you know, the cyber, cyber world and the fiber optics and the, you know, whatever that we we're doing to connect the world. And I got really excited about the day when we could really just exhale and say, okay, now the technology is here. There's so much more that we can do with it. But I've been really dreaming about this since the early 90s. And it's interesting because so much of what has happened is really about giving people a voice, um, yes. giving them a voice so they're they're heard on, you know, whether it's political debate or even you know, as you're you're now doing emergency, and and that just seems to be so vital. That I mean, that's who we are as human beings. Yes, I think it's an important aspect of the healing process. I think by being able to have a voice is very important and imperative in today's world. I think what's happening with the industry is that the publishing industry is kind of dissipating and changing and music industry of course is going through its morphing. Everything is going through its morphing. The networks aren't the networks anymore. You can get content on multiple platforms. And so what what I want to do is just find the most innovative, amazing technologies and bring them under the fold. For instance, next week in Digital Hollywood, we're going to be launching a program called Tell Us Your Story. And that Tell Us Your Story is allowing for people to come on board, get on our site, sign up for it, and they can videotape from their iPhone, their computer, a little handheld or whatever. It doesn't have to be a fancy camera. They tell their story for like two to three minutes, and then they get a chance to edit it in our own editor player pull music down from our music library, put together this very slick video that mostly before would have to be done by professional editors. Now the, it, the power is in the hand of the storyteller. And then we're going to be putting these, these stories online in our archives and our communities. And then the people are going to vote on which is the most compelling and impactful person telling their story. And they'll win a trip to Hollywood for our Gwen Gala in March in 2013. And there's a whole other list of wonderful things that will happen by then. But I must mention that this is powered by WeVideo, which is a Palo Alto company. Um, their, their platform has been used from anywhere from Google to Disney in, me- in many ways. And it's just a fabulous way for us to be able to tell stories because that's how people are going to come out of their shell. They're going to voice their, their courageous stories and and show that you don't have to be a victim in these circumstances, that it's really the, the victim that gets to become victorious through t- storytelling. It, it seems like it's kind of an, an updated version of um, Steven Spielberg's uh, Shoah project, you know, where he cataloged, he, you know, found all, you know, anyone who was a Holocaust survivor, you could create, you know, this, this video that, it, you know, explains for future generations um, in, in their family and, and beyond you know, what, what they went through. Absolutely. And it also becomes kind of a time capsule as well that people can go back and revisit their videos down the road. You, know, you can see the miles of, of ways that you've come through the healing process. 
I've been working with women and children around the world for many years in an empowerment. And just since Gwen was founded, which was February of this year, so that's what the, the, the amazing trajectory that we've gone through so far and so fast, you know, it's been really fast and amazing. But I've been able to meet up with women that are really ready to tell their stories. And we only have a few minutes left. Um, in talking about the trajectory, what do you think the next big thing is? Are you talking as far as Gwen or the next big thing? in Just in general in terms of, you know, kind of platforms or communications technology and what do you see the the next when ten when we have our on you on the show ten years from now, um, what will we be talking about? I think there's going to be such an amazing, um, you know, the futuristic vision is coming into play. I remember back in 1999, I was in New York at the Tech MIT Fashion Show, and we had one of our entries in in that thing, and they had these really cool glasses that you could see the database of someone walking towards you, and you knew the conversation you had with them, which, you know, is a whole other conversation in itself. But those kind of glasses are on the market now. The things that are the multi-platforms, the cell phones are getting smaller and smaller. I can't imagine in 10 years, you know, we'll be, you know, replaying this video, I mean, this audio and saying, you know, now we, we can see each other in holograms and we can right. have lunch with someone who's in Paris. You know, you never so know. If people want to learn more about um, the Gwen Network, where should they go? Thank you for asking for that. It's gwennetwork.org. So it's G-W-E-N-N-E-T-W-O-R-K. Org. And then if you want to go find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, anything, just do the, the normal whatever.com and then slash Gwenorg. So we're branded Gwenorg across the board. Well, Tess, thank you very much for joining us. We're running out of time. So I want to thank you. And definitely, everyone, if, you, if you have an iPhone, download the Gwen app. It's free. And um, I just want to um, make one um, shout out. Um, 17 years ago today, I, um, I found out I had a detached retina, and luckily I had good doctors and people who were able to make sure I got to a doctor and were able to make sure I had surgery so that I, I still can see. And uh, so that, that was definitely a big day in my life, and I just want to thank everyone who got me through that day. And uh, so you've been listening to Cyberlong Business Report. Hope you'll join us next week as we broadcast again from Internet Law Center in Santa Monica in the heart of Silicon Beach. So court is adjourned. Um, join us next week on Cyberpunk Business Report on Webmaster Radio. Be sure to download our mobile app so you can take us with you. Court is adjourned. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited.